I'm not here to tell you to think like me. In fact, if you think like me, then you're not thinking hard enough. I want you to challenge my thinking. Can I have your attention for a moment? What's good, Revolution? Here we go. Here we go. Welcome to the What's a Revolution show, a show for men and the people who love them, where we discuss how men can find and embrace the revolution within themselves. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Corporal. What's good, revolutionaries? As I say every week, I hope all is well. I hope that your families are well. I hope that you are finding space for self-care that you're finding space to do your breath work, to find community, to sit in space, even though as we are still mired in this pandemic, that you're finding opportunities to smile. You're finding opportunities to say, you know what, I'm okay. That you're finding opportunities to move the naysayers and the negative thoughts out of your mind to say, you know what, we're gonna move through this time. And the ability to have community is so important. At the airing of this show, Revolutionaries, I am heartbroken. You've heard me talk extensively about Green Run High School, the best place on earth. Yes, I still, 33 years later, still call it the best place on earth. It was that opportunity between 87 and 89 where I got to really mold into the the worldview and perspective that I would take on in life. Our leader, our leader, Gil Flores passed this weekend. And you would never think that 30 years later, you think about a class president and his impact on 1000 graduates. But that's how tight we were and are as a community. And Gil Flores led us as our senior class president And at every class reunion, at every turn, Gil was right there with eloquent words, a wonderful smile, a warm hug, and the ability to continue to galvanize us as a a collective of stallions. We mourn your loss, Gil. We mourn you as a leader. We mourn you as a person, as our, as our, our conduit to greatness, Gil. I remember too many times the laughter, too many times seeing each other and just saying, brother, let's get together. Let's have that drink. Let's let's spend some time together. And so as I mourn your loss, I rejoice you. I uplift you and thank you for your friendship. As I spent time with my friend, my Gigi, as I call her, my girl to gall, we realized that 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 time at Green Run, we were activists before we even knew (laughs) that we were advocates for each other. And Gil, you love that movement of us. For those of you all watching this video, you will see that this unity sign meant so much to us that wherever we went, whether it was on the road to a game or we were set in the hallowed holes of Green Run High School, that unity sign made sure that we knew that we were together. And so today, as we celebrate the life of Gil Flores, here I am standing to you, brother, holding up this unity sign and saying that we are still with you, and we know that your spirit is still with us, dear brother. I love you. We love you. And we will miss you. Because we know, dear brother, we know, dear brother, that friendship is essential to the soul. And as I say that, I think about my guests today, revolutionaries. And I know you're going to say, 
corporal, you always got these damn omegas on your show. But look, as I said to Dr. Jack Monell in the green room, right? The bras do amazing things, right? They're ama amazing feats that we do. And let me tell you, as, as I tell this story tonight with Dr. Jack Monell, we will continue to have this, this lineage of great Omega men who will be on this show because our stories, <laughs> let me tell you, revolutionaries, are one that heroes are made of. You heard me. That's right. I said that Omega men are heroic. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jack. Associate Professor and Program Coordinator of Justice Studies at Winston-Salem State University. What's up, good bruh? <laughs> How you doing? Brother Doc, uh, thank you so much for um, that introduction and invitation. Uh, but, but let me uh, begin quickly and just extend my heartfelt condolences on, on the loss of your comrade, um, your lifelong friend, your classmate, um, as any loss is difficult. But but one, as you so so well stated and shared with the audience, clearly impacted you greatly. So my heart goes out to you, uh, brother. Thank you, dear brother. Um, one thousand of us graduated from Green Run High School in 1989. We are the largest class in Virginia state history. And 33, 30, you know, almost 33 years later, uh, somewhere around there that from the time that we met as a class, to now I can walk on the streets, dear brother, and say, what's up, Stallion? And that endearing feeling that you get knowing that that Stallion, that that Kelly Green royal blue and white still runs through our veins, right? That happiness and joy, that camaraderie as, as that camaraderie as we know fills us up. And I was so fortunate today, dear brother, to, as I said, sit with one of my classmates that we met in elementary school. Can you imagine that? Wow. In elementary school and to sit as we, you know, as we went through high school and middle school together to sit and still bring joy to each other's life, you know, and that that is a that is a blessing. And it is a blessing to be here with you today, dear brother, and all the great work that you've done. But we spent some time early in this conversation, and I really want to illuminate this for a second. Um, our role as older Omega men. You know, as we pontificate, as we see the world as, uh, you know, from a, a person of color, a man of perspective, what has Omega meant to you? And how are you then proliferating that out into the world these days? Great opening, brother. Great <laughs> opening. Um, you know, as 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 older men, you know, oftentimes, you know, the old adage, you know, you know, when you're younger, you make youthful mistakes. As you as you get older, you learn from your mistakes, and hopefully, you grow and, and you you begin to do men things or or things uh, you know age appropriate. Um, and in my journey in Omega, you know, I, I've been able you know to see how I've been able to, to to first and foremost appreciate what she has done for me for us. Um, outside of the glamour, outside of the glory, um, oftentimes, you know, young brothers or, or persons outside of the organization, they just see the shine, they see the flaws, they see the glossiness and everything else that social media and popular culture uh, presents. But for me personally, you know, Omega for me goes back, goes back to, to, to my youthful days. 
days, my my uh, my uh, delinquent days, my 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 days that unfortunately I was lost um, in trying to find myself as a, as an adolescent growing up during the crack epidemic. You you say eighty nine, uh, I would have been class of ninety one, and and growing up in New York City during this this torrid horrible. Um, representation of poverty, degradation, drugs, crime, and, and no one cared about us, right? And, and because of the decisions I made early on as a juvenile, it, it brought me to facilities, you know, to correct my behavior, you know, and, and duly noted it, it, at that time, I guess it was necessary. But my first example of knowing what an Omega man was, or what Omega was, was uh, the Carter with the Dr. Carter G. Woodson Academy. What? And, yes. So I'm in this facility crying every day because, you know, it's it's a horrible situation. Um, so I'm crying every day, but I, I was able to gain some solace. I was bright, obviously. That's always the caveat, right? <laughs> I, I was bright, validatory in this, salutatory in that. But unfortunately, those mistakes led me to that place. And they, of course, because we're minors, they have to educate us. So the educational wing in this facility was named the Dr. Carter G. Woodson Academy. So, of course, I don't know what this means, but I just know, dag, it has to be somebody important because why would they name them, right? right. So then I'm looking at this, this counselor. They didn't call them corrections officers, you know, because it's juveniles. And this counselor has this horseshoe on his own. So I'm looking at dude and I've always been inquisitive and, and always, and, you know, very deliberate about what's going on around me. So I'm just like, yo, what is that? Right. <laughs> and he looks at me, he's like, uh, that's my fraternity. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean? First generation, everything. So I'm, I'm, I'm clueless. And he was like, well, if you go to college one day, you'll know. <laughs> and then he was like, but he was like, that gentleman on the wall is one of my brothers. And I was like, dad, really? And here I am, you know, it, it, it's like this crazy juxtaposition because here's this massive man, you know, clearly he played football, super, you know, uh, well-built, menacing. But then on the wall, there's this, you know, intellect, you know, at least represents a representation of a, of someone who was incredibly bright and knowledgeable. And then he was like, but y'all both in the same fraternity. So then I learned early on that no matter where you're from, who you are, you know, what's your socioeconomic background, at least with us, all we cared about was your character and, and your heart. <laughs> so, you know, and, and so that's where, you know, that's the perfect, you know, backdrop to, 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 to where I'm at today. So all those years later, you know, after obviously pursuing Omega and then, you know, you know, getting, you know, you know, my family life and, and, and trying to do this, you know, trying to change my life because I've had I had some pitfalls along the way, of course, because unfortunately for me, I, I spent almost four years detained. It was four oh. years and, you know, 15 to 19. So I didn't do the high school thing. Like I said, you were two years ahead of me. I would have been class of 91. That's my class year. But I didn't graduate. Um, I had earned my GED while incarcerated because once again, men of Omega who were working at these facilities in upstate New York at that time were like, dude, you don't belong here. And it was bugged because, you know, this is during, you can recall, this is when Magic said, um, had disclosed that he was HIV positive. And I, you know, I'm flabbergasted. I'm like, yo, that's my, yo, I love Magic. 
he, you know, whatever, whatever. And, and, and sadly, I lost my father due to HIV as well, or IV drug use. So I, I knew what it was and I knew the impact and I knew what it was doing to our community. And I told the council, we were having this debate and I'm having this debate with older guys. And I told the council, well, you know, the, the probability of them curing it is not really, that's not how it works. You know, they'll probably find a cure, you know, to prevent it in the future, you know, that kind of thing. And these dudes looked at me like, huh? He's like, Yo, you don't belong here. And, and from there, that was the catalyst of them pushing me to make sure, number one, that I stayed out of trouble so that I could make parole. But then that, I, you know, once I got out, that I'd be able to transition into some sort of institution and then continue with my goals and aspirations. <laughs> there will be a number of people who listen to this show who understand all of the language that you are just <laughs> spitting, dear brother. <laughs> um I love that. And I think that when we think about Omega, because it means so much to me as as, as well, dear brother, it's been uh, a tremendous, I, I can't even think about the, the verbiage, dear brother. Uh, motivation is, is the ill-equipped word that I'm going to use here. My father, spring 49, Theta Psi. So I, I got, I woke up every day seeing a man go to work who believed fully in our principles, who live them out, who lived our creed out and thinking about scholarship and the importance of that. And that scholarship aspect allows us to move through our stations, dear brother. <laughs> and Absolutely. as we move through our stations, we must make sure that we take those with us, dear brother. And, and that's what it seemed like that those men of Omega in the facilities made sure that they were reaching back. And this eloquent young man who was not supposed to be in this space, there was an opportunity. Uh, there was an opportunity for you to fulfill your mission in life. And that is a wonderful thing. And I don't think that I've ever really talked about that aspect of Omega here, that the, the importance, the role models that we have as men as we think about our first card manhood and, and, and what that means, sometimes think, you know, if you are ill-informed or ill-defined, that manhood is, is the gruffness of life. But what we saw, what we saw, dear brother, is that manhood is the ability to uplift, right? Absolutely. Really to think Absolutely. about the greatness of our communities. And even as a young man, and we'll get into that aspect of your work, that there are paths sometimes that our young men make. There are mistakes. And you know that oftentimes if we make mistakes, they, are, they can be lethal or they can be ill-corrected without the right support. And so that often it looked like, it sounds like those brothers made sure, it not, not even sounds like you are the product or the fruit of their, <laughs> fruit of their work, dear brother. Right. So I, I, I am definitely indeed, indeed, excited. Yeah. Go ahead, brother. You want to say? No, it's just you, you, you alluding to, to, to kind of how manhood and masculinity is defined or, you know, particularly in our society. And, and what I oftentimes tell folks in my in my research and in my practice is that, you know, this whole concept of patriarchy from kind of this hegemonic kind of, you know, you know, ideology quite frankly, was beaten to us, you know, throughout slavery. So oftentimes it, what we see today in, in some of our communities is a manifestation of that, right? 
and, and, and that mentoring and modeling that we don't have, you know, speaking from my own experiences, is 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 it is detrimental. And and that's why now, that's why I'm so impassioned about what I do now to make sure that young people see you can be a little bit different, but still have an impact. You don't have to conform because conformity doesn't necessarily mean you're you're doing the right thing either. You know, I, I want, you know, my young young students and, and my the, the the young men and and young young girls that sometimes that we mentor to know that, listen, you know, don't let the shirt and tie fool you. You know, we kind of <laughs> come from similar backgrounds, you know, so. No doubt, dear brother. Dr. Jack Monell, Associate Professor, Program Coordinator for Justice Studies at Winston-Salem State University. Dear brother, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. What's your revolution? My revolution is the undying undenying, unwavering um, energy and motivation I have to ensure that this criminal injustice system we live in today is is demolished, rebranded, however you want to phrase it, whatever is your catchphrase, to ensure that our communities are, are, are viable, successful, and that our young people realize that education is not some nerdy white thing. Education, listen, our kings and queens in Africa were incredibly bright, if you understand history. You know, being smart and being educated is, is, is not, you know, is not a sellout way. So my revolution is to, to continue to work hard and tirelessly in our communities to ensure that everyone has an opportunity Forget the equality uh, that, that oftentimes we we discuss. You know, the equity is what hurts us quite often. You know, you know, we can still go to college. Yeah, that's equal. But equity says we may not be able to afford it, and we may not have government assistance because certain individuals feel that we should have to pay for it because it's a privilege, not a right. So that's what I fight for. That is my revolution. My revolution is that as long as I'm breathing. I'm gonna fight against some injustice, brother. Mm. And, and even if, and 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 in, and in my old age, God willing, <laughs> I'm gonna be rolling down and, you know, cause I'm just, I'm like you, man. I, I cycle, bro. I'm trying to stay healthy, man. Yes, <laughs> so, man. <laughs> so yeah, so that's my revolution. My revolution is a culmination of things, but at the at the very base of it is ensuring that the the ep- equitable application of justice across the board, education, healthcare food deserts, and just having the opportunity for us to be able to enjoy what we've contributed since the founding of this country. Yes. Dear brother, especially that last part, when you talk about to be able to enjoy the fruits, right? The backs that this country, you know, has been built upon for us to be able to walk safely and lovingly in our communities to, to be able to see that's my home that I purchased, right? Exactly. To be able to, and we talk about this at Camelback Ventures where I work, to be able to have livable communities where, as I said, walking down the street with family members, going to schools that actually uplift and support and amplify our students, our children's ability to grow into, right, images of ourself. 
right? And so as our young men, as they become, as, as we begin to even amplify and increase, right, Omega, they get to see good Omega men doing the work <laughs> in the community because we have been able to buy into, when I say buy into, that we've been able to really move into the spaces that allow us to feel safe in who we are as people. And I want to move back, Dr. Jack, is because you talk about this, at, you know, early on, is that many of the inequities that hold us back or have held us back, as we've seen, have been because of the laws that have been created to hinder, to hold us back and to incarcerate us as a people and then us as men. Why has your work? Why has your work really begun there? Why is that? Why, why is that your mantle? Quite frankly, because I'm I'm the perfect case study, <laughs> because I've endured it and experienced it and witnessed it. You know, from from. I guess arguably from a victim standpoint, and I say victim in the sense that we we never really had an opportunity. Yes. Some on, a, on the other side will say, well, you, you could have went to school. You could have made better choices. Yeah. OK. Yes, I agree totally. But systemically and institutionally, you know, you know, we had no food. We were on public assistance. We had to struggle. And, and some of the issues that we see in our communities, oftentimes these young people don't have an out. You know, my focal point and you're going to laugh at this, man, but you can appreciate it. I ultimately knew I can go to college or I wanted to go to college because of then the Cosby show of then the different world of then finally school days. Wow. And, yeah. and, and what it showed, you know, the, when you look at because, you know, a lot of what I do deals with popular culture. What I look at, you know, is when you have these positive representations of our community, people strive for better. It's, it's you, you know, you can ask all the, the, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but you can ask all the clinical folks and it, it just, all the literature supports, you know, how these images manifest in, in, in one's mind. So for me, it, it's always been imperative that we, we deal with these inequities. And as a kid in the housing projects of Brooklyn, when a social worker who was finally dressed, by the way, and sharp, brother, because I, you know, I used to be a social worker too, you know, and I was like, who is this man enduring these, you know, because who are we kidding? We had some rough dudes in my projects. He would come and see my grandmother and talk to her, and she'd be all tickled because she she was kind of smitten with him. But you know, years later, you know, I didn't understood why he was there, obviously, but it was like it, it's this institutional this institutional kind of racism and systemic racism you talk about the criminal justice system and the laws think about it from the slave patrols to jim crow from jim crow to 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 the 60s movements you know civil rights and otherwise from the 60s to the 80s the crack epidemic after the heroin epidemic from the 60s. From then you get all these synthetic drugs and then you get stop and frisk and then you get the new Jim Crow. And we go from a system where the criminal justice system in the 80s, you know, its numbers were nowhere near. We're number one in the world in incarceration rates. 
We incarcerate more people than third world countries. And that's an embarrassment. You know, when other countries deal with criminality differently and it's more holistic, it's more in, ingrained in addressing the ideology of it. Right. Because people always be like, I've always operated under the wise, you know, we're criminologists by training. Why do people do it? Even the most heinous crimes, there's a root to everything. Yes. So it's like, why do people do it? You want to address criminality? Let your dog, me and you will win a Nobel Peace Prize. Just go in the community. Yes. Change the demographics yes. in, in, in the context of logistics, you know, provide them the resources and access and the structure and the, and, and the modeling that they may need and watch how things change and stop incarcerating people. And I promise you, in 10 years or so, the same people you are incarcerating left and right will be successful citizens in our society. Mm, brother, you know, as you were speaking, I keep thinking about. I want to say the current political cycle, but at the airing of the show, the political cycle would have changed just a little bit, right? Yes, indeed. And, you know, as I think about, you know, what you just said is that we've had these conversations around defund the police and those, and I'm going to call it right now a political term, you know, because what happened is what we saw in November, we saw progressive politicians who had championed defund the police lose because what and as you and I both know that language words matter and so and, and, and what happened in in my opinion is that as we started talking about defund the police right we always have to think about white supremacy culture and how how people are going to internalize that aspect so when you said defund the police right people are like oh my god are you going to take money away from the police they're not going to be in the police Instead of, hey, let's go and do the homework around what's happening around this defunding the police. As you just said, many organizations, as they're thinking about it, they, they've taken off the mantra of defund the police. And, they're, and they are basically diverting funds to other aspects, right, of community policing and community engagement, right? Instead of saying that we're going to fully fund police to do X, we're going to shift funding for social workers and psychologists and community engagement and religious activities or all of these different activities that actually bring people together. And I've seen policy change. And that's so key, right, as we think about the work that we do, that policy is about changing people's behavior. We've got to package it in some way that doesn't scare people, which I hate. But when we when we when we change policy and get people to change their behavior, instead of sending right for a mental health call, we're sending ill-trained police. We're sending mental health workers. So we're not seeing on the news brothers being shot because they're going through a schizophrenic episode. Right. Or they're bipolar and they're having a manic episode. And all of a sudden we're seeing them murdered on the street because someone is scared. And they don't know they're ill-equipped for or they don't have the training to understand how to de-escalate what's going on. And so hopefully within this new political cycle, we'll have better conversation about what this looks like in our communities right across the country and how cities and towns and large metropolises are thinking about policing and working together with communities to de-escalate and de-incarcerate folks, right, for accidents, things that happen in communities that could be 
right, handled in a different way. Because as you said, we incarcerate more people than any other country in the world, which means that we incarcerate more black people than any other country in the world, which means that we incarcerate more black men than any other country in the world. And I lived in Louisiana for 15 years and I always have to give a shout out to my beloved New Orleans, but we incarcerated more people in Louisiana than any other place in the world. And uh, Louisiana was still, Louisiana was still one of those states that executed uh, minors before the Supreme Court, you know, made it, you know, unconstitutional. So I know, brother, I use, I I like going down to New Orleans too, but I use them a lot in my class. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you know, and shout out to brother Will Snowden at the Jura Project. You know, it'd be interesting for you to see what's going on with the Jura Project and Will Snowden, good, good brother, uh, happens to be a Kappa, so, uh, (laughs) you know, but he's an amazing brother who helped fight, you know, with some other advocates and activists in New Orleans to overturn the non-unanimous jury jury deliberations where you could be convicted in Louisiana with a 10 to 2, you know, 10 to 2 verdict. And so congratulations to him on really overturning that. What we're seeing now is that there's a case with Cardell Jones, if I'm correct, who shot our beloved Will Smith, Super Bowl champion, but there was a 10 to 2 verdict. And it really caused a lot of uproar in our community. This brother's been in jail for five years, and now the Supreme Court has actually vacated the conviction. And so now Jason Williams, a good friend of mine, who's now the New Orleans uh, district attorney, will have to decide whether or not he's going to take up the case again. So it's really, really interesting. But brothers, you talk about education and you talk about criminal justice. You have spent some of your life's work really thinking about how to make sure that people who have been incarcerated wrongly have been able to find their freedom. I want you to talk, a, 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 not even a little bit, but talk some about Brother Ronnie Long, brother who was convicted of rape 44, 45 years ago, wrongfully convicted of rape. Why was that such a, a turning point for you? Why did you and your team pick that up? And what have you seen that has come out of Brother Ronnie having his freedom? So in my lifetime, I never could have could have imagined being a part of anything as historical as what occurred with Ronnie Long. Um, You know, as as a professor, you know, you, you tend to convey past stories to your students, whatever it is in the textbook. Here we had a real life, real time case that was presented to, to myself and our students by my colleague, uh, Dr. Nation, Dr. Denise Nation, who uh, she she was the, the lead on it. And, and basically she presented the case to us about six years ago, give or take. Um, and she was like, you know, there's this case. Um, I spoke with his wife. Um, you know, you guys can review it, obviously. But, you know, we're we're, we're, we're going to try to work with this family. We're, we, we, we th- you know, I think he's innocent. And then, you know, we all kind of came to the conclusion equally after reviewing the, the case. He was like, yeah, this brother was 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 um, wrongfully convicted. For those unaware, just so you understand the, the backdrop of it, this occurred in Concord, North Carolina, which is obviously a predominantly white area uh, in, in uh, North Carolina, outside of Charlotte, maybe about 35 minutes outside of Charlotte. And Ronnie Long 
This was 1976. I was three years old, brother. <laughs> so this is 1976. And apparently this, this wealthy, prominent white woman, well, let me rephrase, a wealthy, prominent white woman was sexually and physically assaulted. There's no denying that. That occurred. Um, after a faulty eyewitness, no DNA evidence, and, and other issues, overzealous police, racist police department, and DA, and an and all-white jury convicted him of, of, of this, this horrible crime, because it, it indeed was a horrible crime, without a doubt. And for the next 44 years of his life, he has maintained his innocence to the point that they have been offered him a lesser charge in time served if he just said, I did it. And he refused to, to do it. Um, I had the pleasure of visiting him while he was in, incarcerated. Um, and we had you know, great talks, um, very personable, very, you know, incredibly bright, you know, a lot of pain in him, obviously, at that time, because of what he endured. Um, and, and, uh, and brother, to, you know, having students work on that case, you know, seeing students flourish, seeing students disappointed because, you know, we had some bumps and bruises along the way legally, you know, through the various appellate processes and um, keeping their resolve strong and, and encouraging them and motivating them and writing uh, Ronnie letters and having Ronnie speak to our classes. Because what Dr. Nation did was she infused his project. It was a project into our curriculum. So like all of our classes, he would speak, he would call into the class, speak to the students from prison and students would write him letters and they'd be crying. I mean, it was an incredible, you talk about high impact practices from education, you know, audience out there. And, and it was just, when we saw him get released, when we went up there, my colleague and I, Dr. Nation and I, and uh, some of our students met us and we saw that dude walk through them gates, man, that brother, man, it was surreal. It was, you know, you know, as they say, the out of body experience, and I mean, it was just incredible, you know, it was just incredible because this man spent at this, even to this day, I mean, shoot, I'm only I'm 47. He spent almost my entire life to date incarcerated for a crime he didn't commit. And what was worse, and here in North Carolina specifically, you know, as with many other states, Southern or otherwise, they have a history, longstanding history of wrongfully convicting black males. You know, with no due process, you know, or or some, uh, you know, semblance of it. So it's like this brother. So now he's free it's for everyone out there. He's free. He was freed back in August. Um, he's he's living with his wife. You know, there's been some uh, you know ups and downs. Him trying to get acclimated or reacclimated. Listen, this guy been incarcerated for decades, bruh. He was incarcerated before the internet, before cable television. I mean. Everything. So I can't, it's like being in the twilight zone and, yes. and coming yes. back into this reality. But but he's doing well, man. He's doing well, you know, still fighting. He recently got pardoned. That was a big issue for those unaware. In the state of North Carolina, even though uh, he was freed by the Fourth Circuit or his conviction was overturned by the Fourth Circuit Appellate Court in Virginia, in Richmond, um, the governor still had to pardon him in order for him, in order for the state to say this guy is innocent and that he could receive benefits. So he was recently pardoned, finally. 
And now he can receive state benefits, which he's due, which is a pretty hefty sum, but nothing can replace the 44 years that he served. And I know that was a lot, brother. <laughs> no, I'm just, Dr. Jack, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about the last 44 years of my life. And like you said, you were three years old. I was five years old. And to think about what would have happened if somebody had taken the last 44 years of my life away from me. In the imagine midst, that. Imagine that. In the midst of one of the most revolutionary times in our country, in the world. And then to walk out, and I've seen video of him walking out of jail with his black suit on and the, and the red and, and, and the exuberance that you have. But I think about the mental health aspects of, of, of being incarcerated for that long and knowing full well that you were wrongfully accused and then coming out into the world and somebody saying, we're sorry. And that now we have to figure out how to, in, to ingrain you and ingratiate you back to a world that do, looks nothing like what you did in 19. I mean, literally it is a it doesn't hi- exist hyper hyper, you know, like yeah. it's literally, he got on the star trip. He got on the enterprise <laughs> and you know what I'm saying? And, and warp speed through time to come out in 2020 dear brother and then to say i've got to live how old is this brother now um he was 21 he's what maybe 66 give or take yeah yeah he should be yeah he's a great you know he's a grandfather now you know his his mother his mother died right before he, he was released um i mean all of the isms you know he missed i mean and and that was one of our concerns. You know, he's a strong brother. He has a great wife. He has a great support system, thankfully. Um, so that helps. Um, prior to him, um, my colleague, Dr. Little, had worked on his case. This was before my tenure. The Daryl Hunt story. The Daryl Hunt. remember that, yes. Yeah, yes. so Daryl Hunt was another one. He did about 20, served 20 years. Yes. And Larry Little and the attorneys, you know, his representation got, you know, finally got him freed. and. He was out for about 10 years or so, and unfortunately, he committed suicide. Yeah, you know, I remember because to your, to your point, yeah, he just it was it was just even after, you know, the settlement and doing relatively well, you know, once again, you know, you know, and, and having some, you know. No one incarceration is it, it, it's nowhere pleasant, you know. As in, as a black male, you you already walking whether you're incarcerated or in the community, you walk in fear, you walk concerned, you're always alarmed. I'm an educated man, I, you know, you know I've been blessed that way. My sons are respectful, educated young men, and I have to always, you know, read them the riot act. Okay, you know, if you get pulled over, put your hands up, turn the lights on, turn the music off. Yes, sir. No, ma'am. I don't care what they call you. Don't fight or argue with them at the street or at the stop. We got attorneys for that. You know, I just recently did a piece about the talk, you know, other, you know, white or otherwise, their talk is birds and the bees. My talk is our talk is birds and bees. Oh, and how to survive in these streets because there's a bullseye, you know, and, and my son's, Bro, that that is at this stage in my life, that is probably the one of the only things. Well, not the only, but one of the things that constantly concern me. I, you know, and I stay meditated up, 
and pray it up. But it's like, I always, you worry, bro, when they just, you know, you can't control them. They, you know, I got one that's 20, one is 16, and they're freer now. And it's like, we know what our society entails. And we know, especially after what occurred, people were saying throughout the airwaves, oh man, I can't believe this. And I'm like, where have y'all been for the last yeah, 60 yeah. years? Dear Nothing brother, has changed. Yes. Like, <laughs> like it, it's still there. And, and, and at the airing of this show, we would have been one week out at the recording of this show. Excuse me. We have been one week out from literally insurrection in our country and people who don't look like us mad mad <laughs> big mad, mad about bigly bigly mad big look as you say bigly mad about things that in our world right are inconsequential right literally because as you say we are thinking on a daily basis how to survive at no matter what station we are dear brother i'm buying a home right here in virginia beach virginia Knowing the climate and culture that we have lived in and the intensification and amplification of, of certain voices and certain feelings, I worry about my neighborhood, right? And I've never, this is my home, as you heard me talk about my high school, right? This is where I grew up, but things have changed. And so as I think about, do I need to go get a gun or a couple of guns to make sure that I'm protected in my neighborhood, right? My home, because I'm seeing don't tread on me license plates in the neighborhood, right? Or I'm, or I'm seeing what the, the co-opting of the American flag, right? I can't fly the Confederate flag, but let me let you know, because I got this American flag up where my feelings are. I'm a, I've been thinking about this piece on patriotism because it's, it's quite interesting, dear brother, what we consider or what some consider patriotism. I didn't really hear anybody talking about the bounties that the Russians had on our heads and patriotism be equated to that. I didn't hear about patriotism when the Russians hacked us, right? And, and took treasure troves of information and saying, I'm a patriot and, and we need to go after Russia. What I heard patriots talk about was a, an election was stolen. And I'm a patriot because I believe that when another country comes into this country that I was born in, that is an attack on my country. That is an attack on my country. And so I am angry about that. That's my patriotism. But that's another conversation, dear brother. What I want to circle back to because I can get on I can get on a tangent is that <laughs> like Brother Long, right, in 1976, we still have to always have our armor up. Even as even as well-educated men with a cadre of letters behind our name, it doesn't matter. Pull the hoodie on, right? Rest in peace, Trayvon. That we need to make sure that we are safe, that we are opportunities to be our full self, dear brother. And I am grateful for the work that you and your team have done to right, re relinquish the barriers that Brother Long has had for so long, right? The barriers, Right, those psychological brother and, and, and those institutional barriers. For you, dear brother, as 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 we think and as, as brother long goes on, because he has a he's he still has a life, and I'm sure part of that life is about him being more educated. And you talked about this early on. You know, the education is a part of your equity journey. What would you say to educators today as as they think about more opportunities to educate our young men? What would be that 
that that strategy or a tip that you would give them as a scholar to say, hey, this is how you educate our young men. You, you know, very, very good question. And, and this, this is something that I, I find oftentimes in my workshops and trainings. First and foremost, I'm also a trained social worker. So like in social work that, you know, one of the roots of, 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 of the training early on is that, you know, you never cast your own goals onto your clients or whoever community, whatever community you're serving. And, I, and for my educators, I need for them to, to, number one is value their students. Let's start there. Quite simply, value. And, and what we're seeing today, you know, and, and probably two or three publications ago, some colleagues and I, we wrote a piece about kind of the politicization of punishments and how teachers respond to black males, white males in the school setting and the school to prison pipeline. But value. So value your students. Right. They should be blank slates when they come into your classroom. And then from there, you know, you know, meet them where they're at. Now, some some educators will be like, well, we don't have the time, resources, nor support for that. I get that. My wife's an administrator, so I know that. But at the very basic level, teachers should be teachers should engage with students in a manner that's nurturing, supportive, empowering, and motivating. That's simple. That you know, and and quite frankly, if that's not your mantra, if that's not your kind of mo, if that's not what you got into the business for then you're probably in the wrong business. And we see that as well in the literature, right? You know, racism is not excluded in, in, in education. We know it exists, institutional that is. You know, cause you and I both recall for years, they, you know, Columbus found his country or the, you know, the pilgrims and the native Americans were rocking and rolling back then. You know, that's how they presented and romanticized this, you know? Or, you know, Jefferson didn't have, you know, you know, he had a relationship with his slave. No, that's not a relationship. That's rape. But they romanticize history when it when it paints a stain. And and quite frankly, the reality of it is there's a lot of dirty laundry from this country from day uno. And and understanding that as an educator and, and, and I include myself, it's my objective to ensure that I provide students with accurate information. You know, I show them where to look. I don't tell them what to look for. I show them what to look for. And then we process and analyze what they digest. You know, I'm not here to tell you to think like me. In fact, if you think like me, then you're not thinking hard enough. I want you to challenge my thinking, but do so empirically. Don't just do so because it's a feeling. Do so because you can support it, right? So we can have the Socratic debate you know, this intellectual debate, you know, for me, my Rams, no, shout out to my WSSU Rams, um, my Rams, no, I'm going to challenge them to think, but they know at the end of the day, <laughs> I hate to use this example, but it's just funny. You can earn an F on Friday and I can take you to breakfast on Saturday just because I love y'all. You know, yeah, I mean, you, you know, this isn't, I'm not, and you used this word earlier, you know, I'm not in this business to pontificate. To, to be like, I'm Dr. Monell, hoo-ha-he. I'm just, when I step on campus at Winston-Salem State University, brother, I feel like I'm walking, I feel like we went in through the mountains and we're at Wakanda, man. 
Mm. It's so incredibly humbling. I don't take that obligation, you know, lightly, but it's so inspiring to see people that look like you in various shades and backgrounds and cultures and countries and ethnicities. And they're all striving for the same thing, right? To have peace of the pie. They want to be successful in their fields. They, they want to help their communities. They want to grow. That's the fabric of our institutional mandate, you know? And, and you know, it's lifting as we climb continuously. The only thing that changes is their faces. So for me, that's, Education saved my life. Real talk. You know, I could play decent basketball, but I was short and I wasn't going pro. And I, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty athletic, but I wasn't that good, bro. For me, it was the books. That man behind me, Malcolm X, one the first book I ever read in its entirety. Mm, yeah, I wanted me too, to brother. Read, you know, and and his his story is partly my inspiration. Him. Piri Thomas, another Afro-Latino who was locked up back in the days in Harlem. You know, he, he eventually, you know, passed away, but he did a lot of gang work in Cali. You know, Eldridge Cleaver, all of these individuals, you know, for me. And I will finish up on this point. As much as we can, we just need to encourage our young people to read. And they can do audio books. I don't care how they do it, <laughs> but just get the information. Because if you don't know where you come from and, and you allow for it to be interpreted or misinterpreted by social media or Google or whatever the case may be, then you don't know the true essence of the movement or the direction you need to proceed in. And I think that's where we falter as a society. Yeah. We have kind of allowed our young people to not really understand or appreciate our past. And that could even go deeper into fraternal or it can go a whole lot of ways. <laughs> Dear brother, you know, education has been for us, you know, the the door opener, right? When there were barriers, when there were barriers, education, the opportunity to sit in front of something and to internalize and digest information has opened doors for us. We need to make sure, as you said, that we continue to put great things in front of our students that allow them, that motivate them, that see that having an education in some form. And my best friend, Quince Griffin, my childhood best friend, went three years at Virginia Tech. He was the smartest cat that I ever knew, right? He would, he still to this day, he can, he can roll through calculus, but he's not, he's now made his money in real estate. But still that education, it doesn't have to be education in the traditional sense. You just need to go exactly. out and find a way to educate yourself, to grow and, and amplify the work that you want to do. Because if you don't continue to grow, even, even at this stage of life, you will, you will die, right? We think about the mutation. <laughs> and I say this, I say this in the, in the most deleterious way, the mutation of this virus. Guess what that virus is doing, everyone? It's learning. Mutations are about learning. It is trying, like anything else in life, the mutation of this virus is trying to stay alive. It's learning. We, in essence, need to be mutants because we need to continue to grow. We need to continue to learn. And for us as Black men, we need to make sure that we continue to survive. And not only survive, dear brother, but to thrive. 
Absolutely. Look, this has been a wonderful, a wonderful opportunity. Dr. Jack Monell, Associate Professor, Program Coordinator for Justice Studies, Winsome-Salem State University. Also, also good man, good man of the illustrious Omega Psi Phi fraternity. Dear brother, it has been a wonderful opportunity to talk to you, to hear about the great work, to hear about your journey as a man, to journey as, as a scholar, and why you continue to uplift those rams of Winston Salem State. I keep thinking about Big House Gaines, if I'm correct. Yes, sir. There you, you go. Know, there you go. You know, and, I grew and, up, my mother, sweet mother Bertha, Dolores Bryant. We used to go to the CIAA tournament when I was young. Yes, sir. Winston Salem State, <laughs> Big House, Big House Gaines was always leading those Winston Salem State Rams into the tournament doing well. I grew up, I grew up seeing him. You know, and seeing other great men at those, as my mother called the tournament. <laughs> you know, but brother, I ask that you continue to, you know, you know, use our fourth card uplift, you know, to do the continued great work that you're doing, not only at Winston Salem State, but across the country, that your revolution, right, as you talk about the equitable opportunities, that we see this from a systemic perspective, that equity has to happen, right, as an amalgamation of health, education, law. All of the things that make us thrive as people, I, I wish you well. And if there's any way that I can support you and your work, you as a man, you as a person, dear brother, please let us know. You know, I am tremendously grateful for the time and for my revolutionaries. You know, I'm always thinking about you. I'm asking that you take care of yourself, that you be careful for your families, that you still find ways to love on them, that you talk to them, that you find ways to smile, as I said earlier, you find ways for self-care as brother said we stay meditated up and we stay prayed up make sure that you're praying for those who have lost loved ones i pray for the flores family i pray <laughs> i pray for my brother gil i will miss you i will miss you dear brother revolutionaries as i say at the end of every podcast I hope that you can answer what we think here is the most thought-provoking question of your life. What's your revolution? We'll see you next time. Take care. Take What's care. good, revolutionaries? Take care. Take care. Take care. Take care. Take care.